You got to accentuate the positive. A little bit of feel good goes a long way. You're listening to Karen Swain, teacher of deliberate creation, accentuating the positive, showing you a way to a better life. Accentuating the positive, it's not just bad, it's sanity. Who in their right mind would accentuate anything else? I'm so excited to talk to you again for another show, Accentuating the Positive. I'm talking today with Australian journalist and filmmaker Shannon Harvey, who's made a brilliant documentary all about the mind-body connection called The Connection. Hi, Shannon. How are you? Hi. Good. Thanks, Karen. So great to have you on the show. So I just want to fill people in on how our connection came about. I was at a girlfriend's place recently on a Saturday afternoon after radio and she said, look, I'm going to go up to my yoga studio to watch a film. Do you want to come? And I said, sure. What's the film about? She says, I have no idea, but it's called The Connection. So we took off to her yoga studio and they show the film. And I was just blown away because one, it was an Australian making the film because I've seen a few of these types of films, but they're always made by Americans. And I was so excited that this fabulous young Aussie filmmaker and investigator has put this information out into the world. So the connection is all about the connection between the mind and the body. And your story, Shannon, is at 24, you were diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. Do you want to tell us a bit about what happened? Yeah, sure. So I was, I just landed my, my dream job actually with the ABC as a news reporter and uh, it was all coming along beautifully and I started getting really tired and and after my regular runs, because I was a runner at the time, I was slower and slower to recover. So I went and saw a doctor and I thought given that I, at the time I was a, a vegetarian, I thought, oh, you know, I'll be told to take some iron supplements and, you know, maybe rest for a week and, and be on my way. But what eventuated was that actually I, my body was riddled with arthritis, um, inflammation all through my body and my muscles, in my connective tissue and in my joints. And it got progressively worse. Um, I saw the first specialist doctor who looked at my blood results and said that he suspected I had lupus, which is an autoimmune disease where your immune system turns on your own body and, and begins attacking perfectly normal tissue. And he said, you know, this is a very serious illness. He said, um, if if the illness progresses, then he's had patients who had ended up in a wheelchair before they turned 30. So it was a pretty devastating diagnosis. And for years and years, I did everything the doctors told me. I took medication to suppress my immune system and tried various different types of drugs and nothing really worked. Like so many people do, I turned to alternative therapy and I tried absolutely everything under the sun, but I was actually still sick. Yeah. And So when and you say you tried everything, what were some of those things that you tried? Everything from regular massage to acupuncture, everything from kinesiology to craniosacral therapy, everything from Bowen therapy to allergy testing, nutrition, uh, you name it, you tried, tried it. it. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing about those therapies is that they would often make me feel better and seeing the practitioner and particularly, you know, having regular appointments, um, especially for me, massage, remedial massage was, was just very, very powerful. Um, 
none of it really for me ended up being a long-term solution. I would still have these flare-ups. I would still be sick. And one day I stumbled across a document that had actually been written for medical students by an academic at Monash University named Dr. Craig Hassard. And this document was a summary of the latest medical research coming out of places like Harvard and Stanford and Yale showing that the mind, that the thoughts we have and the feelings we feel, the emotions we experience can have an incredible impact on outcomes for people with chronic disease. And for me, this was such a turning point because here was Western science and I've been raised in, in a Western country and here was Western science providing evidence for what I, I, I innately felt to be true because I knew that when I was stressed, and when I mean stressed, I mean stressed at work or going through emotional turmoil, my symptoms of my illness would inevitably be worse. Mm -hmm. And so using that as a starting point, I then went on a journey of investigation, really, and I requested interviews with some of these leading experts who were performing these studies. And as I started implementing what their scientific findings were telling me, I started getting better and better. And that was when I knew that I needed to share this information with other people. That was why my husband and I decided to make the connection. Oh, it makes me want to cry. I tell you, you know, your journey is a testament to my life. So at 24, I wasn't sick. Someone gave me a massage course and uh, I didn't really want to do it because I don't know, I wanted to design clothes, just do something. It wasn't in this mind-body medicine or in the healing arts at all. It wasn't interesting to me. But I saw these people and they looked really happy with their jobs and I thought, oh, they've discovered something. So I did five years full-time naturopathy and at the end of it, I loved it. I enjoyed it. I loved learning about the body, the anatomy, physiology, mm -hmm. symptomatology and diagnosis. You name it, I learned it, massage, everything. I didn't think I felt like I had studied anything that was going to change the world. So I opened up a furniture shop. But as I kept seeking and seeking and seeking but not through illness just through inquisitiveness I soon discovered that the mind is where it's at baby <laughs> you know mm. the thoughts the thoughts mm. let me say the thoughts not the brain so much but the thoughts that we hold mm. and some of the most powerful healings I've had have been through just changing my attitude just changing my ideas mm. like I was a chronic asthmatic as a kid mm. and in my early 20s if I left the house without my puffer, I'd, I'd have an asthma attack from the stress of not having the puffer with me, thinking that if I'm out mm. somewhere and I don't have my puffer, what the hell am I going to do? And the stress of that gave me an asthma attack. And one day I woke up and said, I don't want to be an asthmatic anymore. <laughs> I just don't want to be, I can't live like this. Mm. Never had another asthma attack again. I just made a decision. And even though I did that in my early 20s, it didn't compute that I was that powerful until I investigated what you're now bringing to our screens through science and a whole lot of people's life stories. So congratulations, because I know that there can be a lot of resistance to this sort of information out there. How's the journey been for you with that? You know, the biggest surprise to me since we released the film, and we're nearly, we're just coming up for our one year anniversary, 
The biggest surprise has been the warm response that we've received from the medical community. We've got a very robust host your own screening program and some of our biggest advocates are hospitals, medical centres and doctor's surgeries. And the support that we've had from the medical community has been wonderful and completely surprising. And I think the reason why it's been so well received is because the academic integrity of the experts who are in the film is second to none. So we're talking about people who really are the leaders in their field. And the the vetting process that we did in the pre-production process um, in the research phase of the film was exhaustive. And we really made sure that we did, we thoroughly checked out our experts to make sure that what they were saying was robust and it was accepted within the mainstream uh, research community. Interestingly, one of the questions, we we did pre-interviews with many of the people who we interviewed for the film and one of the questions that we asked people to determine whether or not they were the real deal or whether or not they were slightly over-exaggerating their research findings was, what does your research not say? You know, in the research field, it can be really easy to do a study, to come up with these grand conclusions and then run around telling everybody that perhaps we've, we've got the solution to everlasting happiness or, or long-lasting longevity, you know, or health and well-being, whatever it is. But really, you know, it's just one study and one study that has not yet been replicated. So what we did was we actually asked our academics, the experts who appear in the film, what does your research not tell us? And the ones who were happy to extrapolate for 15 minutes or more about the questions that we still have and the things that are yet to be discovered were actually the ones who ended up being in the film. Wow, fantastic. Well, it's interesting that, you know, our Western civilization culture needs that scientific proof over and beyond even their own life experiences Because for me, it was a no-brainer. When you're not stressed, you feel better. (laughs) And when you're stressed, you don't feel good. To me, that is evidence enough. But Mm. we seek something more than that. And so films like yours and research that you've showcased in the film and the research that's going on today with science now looking at the benefits of meditation and all this sort of thing, is really convincing people to just chill, to chill out. Hey, enjoy Mm. your life. Stop stressing out. But I know it's a little bit deeper than that because this is something that I've been, this is my life's work really. It's, you know, stress doesn't necessarily come from your environment or your job or your partner. It comes from what you believe about yourself. And, Mm. And that's the journey, you know, finding that relationship with self that is a loving, kind relationship and not, beating up on yourself and then beating up on others and beating up on the world and beating up at the people at work and, you know, finding that loving kindness within yourself for yourself and then extending that out to others. That's that's the alleviation of stress, really. Absolutely. And it's really interesting, some of the research about the mindset of, of stress um, that's coming out of universities in the United States. So some really interesting research showing that your belief about stress can actually change your physiological stress response. So if you believe that a stressful task, which um, in this particular study that I'm talking about is a, a social stress test where they're asked to 
do what I can only think of is one of the most torturous things um, <laughs> within an ethical boundary, um, which is they've asked people to, to perform a speech about why they're a good friend, an impromptu speech. And they have to deliver this speech in front of a camera um, that's recording and in front of a hostile panel as well. So we're talking about experts who sit there like this whilst you're trying to whilst you're trying to deliver a speech about why you're a good friend. At the same time, <laughs> shaking their head and looking at their watch and all this sort of thing. And then following that stressful experience, they then make you do some mental arithmetic where the researchers actually tell you that you're doing badly, that you need to perform the arithmetic faster, that everybody else seems to be able to do this and there must be something wrong with you. And whilst they're doing all of this, they're measuring your response to stress. Yeah, yeah. Now, and, and this is a very, it's a very standard test that researchers all over the world now use to induce a stress response in people. But wow. what's really interesting is some research being done by Wendy Barry Mendes shows that your belief about the stress response can actually change the physiology of stress. So they gave some people what they call a mindset intervention where they told people, look, you might think that stress is a bad thing, but in actual fact, stress has been shown to be a good thing. It's been shown to be able to allow you to rise to the challenge, to perform better on tasks to actually give you extra blood flow to your limbs so that you're, you're better able to perform. Mm -hmm. The people who received that mindset intervention, they did show a stress response, but the physiology of that stress response was slightly different. So, for example, their blood vessels opened up rather than constricting. And what was interesting as well is that when they evaluated the performance of those people independently, it was shown that they did actually perform better speeches. So all of this research is showing, again, what, what you're talking about, which is that your mindset, your belief about what will happen can actually be reflected in your body. Look, you know, <laughs> it's taken me 10 years to do these videos <laughs> because of exactly what you were talking about, that stress response. So the stress response was my own self-criticism looking at myself on camera going, oh my God, you're so ugly, you're so fat, you're so old, whatever, you know, the, criti the self-criticism. And so I put myself on radio. It was easy to be behind a mic, you know, no one was looking at me. And still when I was first on radio, because here's the thing, I'm not a journalist. I'm a teacher who wants to teach what your connection, the connection's teaching, because I think it's so important having spent my life researching it. It's so important. So how am I going to get this message out there? I had to get over my own self-criticism in order to put myself out there to get this message out there. And that's taken me years because of this verbal dialogue going on in my head about who I am. And putting myself in front of a camera took me 10 years to do it because mm. I just did not want to do it because mm. of the stress I put myself under and Interestingly enough, I just had to think, you know, this message is so much more important than what I think I look like on camera. It's kind of like, get over yourself. <laughs> but at the same time, that stress that I put myself under, as you said, has made me grow, has made me love myself more, has made me accept myself more. By putting myself in that stressful situation, it's made me get over the self-criticism. Mm. So I think that for most people, speaking in front of people is, is a huge stress for them because of their own self-critical 
thoughts and their thoughts of what do you think of me? That seems to be the stress that most people put themselves under. Like, what do you mm. think of me? Am, am I all right? And you see it on all these singing shows on television. These kids get up and they're terrified. Some of them are literally shaking mm. because they they want to sing their music. They want to, you know, get their music out of them. But then they're put under this huge pressure and stress. So it's really interesting, isn't it, how we perceive stress as a good or bad thing. And people put themselves in stress. They climb mountains, you know. Mm. They, 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 do, they do exercise and they love it. You know, some people love that stress. Mm. I've got to say I'm one of these people that going to the gym and, and um, making my heart beat at a million miles an hour by running on a treadmill and putting myself under stress is not something I love, but then I mm. can understand that it is something somebody else loves. Mm. Mm. So it all comes down to perception, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And it's interesting that you talk about exercise because, you know, exercise has also been shown to have a very big mind-body connection. There, I'm currently writing a book, um, which is a follow-up to the film. So uh, where the film is sort of like an introduction to the mind-body connection, the book extends that quite deeply and looks at all these key areas of our lives. So everything from, you know, mind your stress, which is a really obvious place to start, to mind your emotions, which sort of is a natural extension. But one of the chapters that I'm writing is in fact about the mind-body connection when it comes to exercise. And it is utterly compelling as to what kind of an impact getting regular exercise can have not just on your weight, which is what I think our Western world tends to kind of advertise it as, but actually on, on your brain as well and, and the impact of getting regular exercise on your ability to focus and your ability to function at high levels is really is, it's stunningly compelling. And so I think so often we take this approach with something like exercise that we only exercise for our body. We need to exercise so that we don't get overweight or we you know we don't get muscle tension we need to exercise just for a purely physical purpose but actually what this new science of exercise is showing is that exercise is so important for our mind as well in some studies it's been shown to be as effective as antidepressants for somebody who's got mild depression so really i um i think that the mind body connection it, it goes beyond just thinking about, you know, can our thoughts and feelings have an impact on our health, but actually the way we move our body can actually have an impact on our mind as well. One of the experts that I interviewed for the film, I said as my final, my final wrap-up question, do you believe that the mind and body are connected? And the expert looked at me and he said, <laughs> yeah, I think they are. <laughs> Deepak Chopra used to say, you know, his doctors that used to argue with him about he talking about the mind-body connection and he says, well, how do you think you wiggle your toes? <laughs> Absolutely. Like, yeah. I have to think about it. It's like I'm thinking and now I'm wiggling my toes. It's like, yeah. hello, there's the mind-body connection. Getting back to exercise, you know, you've someone in the film is someone who's incredibly fit and he is training, he's training other athletes, isn't he? And he thinks that the exercise is, is a positive mental attitude and exercise is what it will take to create this healthy life. And he runs, you know, a million miles a day and, and he finds out that he gets very sick. And 
Recently, I was involved in a Conscious Living Expo and there was a young girl, a yoga instructor and a yoga enthusiast, did yoga with that gutso, that sort of, I have to get somewhere. It's like that sense of like competition that we have with ourselves. And again, she got sick. And so both these people learnt the lesson. There's a mindset that you have to have in doing the exercise. It's not just the exercise that's giving the health to the mind, it's the mind that's giving the health to the exercise. Mm. It's this constant feedback loop. It's not one way, one or the other, because mm. to exercise and stress about the exercise is more detrimental to the health than not exercising. Absolutely. And, and to not exercise and stress about not exercising <laughs> is, again, detrimental to your health because it's all involved in the mindset. And he was a great, in the film, what was that guy's name in the film? It's got on their website. He was a great. Yeah, so that's Dr. Craig Duncan, who um, is one of the leading sports experts here in Australia. He, he's responsible for the performance and for the sort of well-being of some of our elite footballers, including at the moment looking after the Socceroos and the New South Wales State of Origin team. He was a really interesting case study, one of the most important case studies in the film because he had a heart attack at a time when he was as fit as the elite athletes that he was training. Yeah. And he he actually had no risk factors for heart disease. Mm -hmm. he, he'd actually even had a recent checkup and been given the all clear by doctors just prior to when he was sick, to when he had his heart attack. And, you know, he said to me at first he was in absolute denial that he'd had a heart attack. He said it couldn't happen to me because he, he saw heart disease as, a lifestyle illness that's caused by people who eat fast food and, you know, that, that is found in people who eat fast food and who don't move their body. And yet here he was, this, this extremely fit person. But the crucial factor in his story is that at the time of his heart attack, he was also under incredible stress. And it was a particularly stressful A-League soccer season. And he, he felt he had taken on the weight of his players' problems as, as if they were his own. And he, he described to me taking those problems home with him, probably not sleeping as well as he needed to. Mm. He really, he had a, um, a type of heart attack where most people die, mm -hmm. a spontaneous coronary artery dissection where there were only a few hundred cases in the world and most people, most of those cases were studied on, as autopsies, so people who had died. So he was such an important case study to include in the film because not only is he extremely knowledgeable about the human body and he's a lecturer in these topics now at, at high levels of academia, but he was also working with these footballers and he was also very well himself, but yet yeah. he, he was at knocking on death's door. And, and his story really tells us a lot about the role of the mind when it comes to our wellness. And He's obviously still alive. He's seen, the doctors are very happy with his progress. He needs to take medication and he doesn't shy away from that. He does what he's told. At the same time, he's also learned a lot about what's important in life. And he left that particular position in his work. He decided to take on less stressful roles. He meditates and his form of meditation is prayer. So he gets so much calm, so much sense of calm out of his relationship with God. And above all else, he's prioritised his family. 
And one of the things that he said to me that I found very compelling is when you're lying in hospital not sure whether or not you're going to live or die, you want the worst day of your life back over and over and over again. He says it really shifts your perspective on life when really you don't know how much longer you've got to live. And he said that really changed things for him. You know, he's, st- he's far less grumpy with his children and his wife and, you know, these things seem trivial in comparison to the fact that he nearly died. So it was a very, um, it was a really wonderful um, case study to feature in the film because I think we can, we can all learn a lot from his story. Look, one of the beauties of the film is that it balances the scientific research with the inspirational stories and people's personal stories. And he was you know, one of those inspirational mm. stories. And, of course, you had Ian, Dr Ian Gawler on there who was one of the first pioneers of mind-body connection and teaching people to meditate and chill out and love mm. themselves. Mm. I mean, he started that about 30-odd years ago after he mm. had, was, had his leg amputated with cancer and the doctor said, you're going to die. And... Um, yeah, 30 years ago, I was talking about this 30 years ago, I was running the naturopathy school that I went to went bankrupt. So a few of us started a collective and we were running it out of our homes. And I had Patria King from Quest of Life come and talk mm. about it. She's another one that talks about mm. how, you know, loving herself made her, mm. helped her get over cancer. And now she's dealing with cancer patients and, and terminally ill patients all the time, helping them. It's really exciting to hear you say how embraced this information is now because, Mm. you know, then, back then, it so wasn't embraced. They they Mm. were pioneers there. But the stories in the film really make it so much more convincing, I think, people's stories, because facts can be facts and it's kind of like, Mm. all right, there's some facts. But when you really hear these Mm. stories of recovery, of impossible recovery, Mm. by simply shifting your perspective about your life, it's um, fantastic. Well done, you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And also on your website, I noticed that, you know, you were diagnosed at 24 with the autoimmune disease and you po- posted last year, 2014, that you've been given the all clear. Mm. Yeah, now that's an interesting one. Um, I did write that because I had some blood results which showed that there was no sign of autoimmune disease. But I'm really careful to talk about this in the context of recovery and not cure. Um, It's so important. I really don't want people, you know, taking away from the messages that I've got that you can somehow change your genetic blueprint as such, although there is a lot of research showing that with epigenetics we can change the way our genes are expressed. We can't actually change the fundamental foundations. And and so I, I still have flare-ups from time to time and they always coincide with emotional yes. events in my life. Mm-hmm. So you'll, you'll have noticed on my website that whilst one post might talk about how wonderful it is to get the all clear, um, another post will talk about recovering from a setback. Mm-hmm. And for me, this is about living life better. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think so often we can buy into promises of cures that are unrealistic and and sometimes dangerous. I just want to Um, say one thing, you know, life mm, is an incurable disease. (laughs) Life is an incurable disease. Like there's no getting out of here alive. You know, it's like like it's not about how long you live. It's about the quality of life while you're here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We're all going to die, as Dean Ornish says. We're all going to die. Yeah. We're all going to die. Yeah. The death rate is still one to one. So... (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I think that's a really important, you know, message for people is that this is about living life better, no matter what your health situation is. And I think I really don't want people kind of thinking that this is this is promising some miracle cure because it is not a miracle. And it, the other thing about it is that none of this is easy. Um, Do- Professor George Jelinek, who is one of the case studies in the film, who has recovered from multiple sclerosis, which is a, an, an illness that conventional medicine has no cure for, he's a remarkable person and, and one of the most insp- biggest influences on my own recovery. And he's not only recovered from MS, but his program has seen other people recover from MS as well. But what I take away from him is is that we can still, we can make a decision to work really, really hard at bettering our lives. But the really hard thing is not things like making sure you get enough exercise. It's not even, um, he, he advocates a vegan diet, which in this, in this modern world is very difficult. But he says it's actually, all of that stuff is really easy. <laughs> changing your diet dramatically and maybe changing your work and all that sort of stuff. The really hard work is the mind, is, is, is battling with the ups and downs well, and it's the... Uh, challenges um, that you have. I wouldn't say it's hard work because in that in itself is a thought that it's hard means that you're going, it's going to be hard because that's just a thought in itself. It's, um, it definitely takes practice, but it doesn't have to be hard. Perhaps the word is commitment then. Commitment. Yeah. Commitment would be a good word. But, you know, this is something I say with my clients all the time when they say to me, it's so hard to change my thoughts. It's so hard to change my thoughts. And I say, you see, if if you didn't believe that thought, if you believed it was easy to change your thoughts, you'd have a better time with it because the belief that it's hard is going to create the struggle within you. So this is something I come up with a lot with my clients is that your belief about, about something is going to make the journey of it enjoyable or not. It's like exercise. If I believe, if, if I love exercise, the journey of exercise is enjoyable. But if I hate it and I do it because I, I'm doing it to be healthy, then the, it's not an enjoyable journey. I'm just doing it because I'm supposed to do it because it's on the list of things to do to be healthy. Anita Morjani is a fantastic example of that. Have you seen her story? She's one of, she's now Hay House author. So she was a vegan, meditator, yoga she just did everything and she was terrified of getting cancer she watched her best friend die of it she watched her brother or die of it and she got cancer and battled with it for four years and eventually died of it and had this amazing near-death experience where she spoke to her father on the other side and a few other people and they all said you know all of this was created because of your fear about getting it it's like nothing that you did to, to combat the cancer was combating the fear in itself. Go back and love yourself. So she now travels the world teaching people to love themselves regardless of what they do to gain health. And that's her major message. And I have to say her near-death experience is amazing. Her book is called Dying to Be Me because what she realised was that 
in all the time that she was doing all these healthy things, she was trying to please somebody else's agenda, even the agenda of what health is or her father's agenda or her society's agenda or her religious, because she came from a Hindu, I think, background, her religious agenda. And um, so she called the book Dying to Be Me because it was about what do I love? What do I want? What do I love? So it's a, it's a potent message, falling in love with yourself. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so, mm. You know, I really believe that the body in itself has a consciousness which knows how to maintain health. And mm. when I was studying as a, a naturopathy years ago, we learned about homeostasis, which is the body's mechanism in which it's always constantly trying to balance. There is so many influences happening. There's... Um, influences from outside us and there's influences from inside us and so the body's always trying to balance itself and uh, when it's really out of balance it speaks to you it says put yourself back in balance and it speaks to you through your negative emotions like your negative emotion is your body saying you're stressing <laughs> if you're feeling bad you're believing a stressful thought that's not true and if you keep ignoring your body speaking to you, it speaks to you in, in other ways. Symptomatology it becomes a symptom, which becomes a disease, which becomes chronic. And I believe that all of it is just our body speaking to us about get back into balance, back, you know, find that balance mm. in your life again, mm. that home. Yeah, well, I mean, the, I, mean I, I, I can't help but draw on the, the, the new research about the enteric nervous system, which is a nervous system in your gut. Yeah. Um, which researchers are calling the second brain yeah. because it's so full of brain matter, really, that can act completely independently of our own brain. So if it's disconnected via that vagus nerve, uh, then it can keep on operating. And that's where uh, something like 90% of the serotonin in your body is produced. So we all know how important serotonin is for so, so much of our emotional well-being. And, uh, and so there you go. There really is an unconscious innate thinking, even though we're not conscious of it. Yeah, the body thinks. That's right. <laughs> the yeah. body thinks. The, the second brain in your gut. Yeah, I think it was Deepak that talked about, you know, there are three stages of the embryonic development and the neural stage is actually connected to the gut and the skin and so many other organs that are all part of what is deemed the brain when it develops in an embryo, like there are three sections which develop the whole human. And it's interesting to realise that it's not just your brain thinking, you know, as you mm. said, like even your skin is thinking. It mm. has uh, a brain, the receptor sites are the similar to the neuroreceptor sites and it's uh, <laughs> receiving information and, and processing it much like the brain. So it's, yeah, the body's fascinating. The body is the reason I started looking into spirituality. When I was starting as a naturopath, pretty agnostic, not thinking that anything religion was showing me was something I wanted to look at. When I started to realise how fantastic the system of the body is, how incredibly intricate and complicated and brilliant, I just kept thinking, who designed this? You know, what designed this? What intelligence designed this body? What is that that came up with this incredible organism? And that's when I started asking different questions, as you've been asking. Indeed, yes. So where do you want to take this research? What's happening with the film now? 
So uh, now I'm writing the book, which at the moment has a temporary title of The Whole Health Revolution. And the idea behind the book is that it takes key aspects of our lives and uses the science to, to provide actionable information that we can all take away. So that uh, will be released next year. And I'm very excited about it. It's taken an enormous amount of research. It's certainly the biggest project I've ever undertaken, even over the film. It's incredibly exciting. And, uh, and I hope that it's going to provide a lot of answers for people who are, who are searching. One of the other biggest surprises for me since we released the film a year ago has been not only how warmly the medical community has responded to the film, but also just how extensive this chronic health epidemic that we face really is. And, you know, as a journalist, I know the statistics. World Health Organization estimates that one in two, more than one in two people will be diagnosed with a chronic illness in their lifetime. And so there's the statistics that I know, and then there's what I'm seeing as I travel around attending screenings of the film and and correspond with people who are reading my blog and people who are sending emails in every week after they've seen the film. Mm-hmm. And the extent of this epidemic is is vast. And I've started referring to people who reach out to me as, as refugees from the healthcare system. And, <laughs> and, I, and I call them refugees because they really have nowhere else to turn. And they are at a point where they, they've just been so enormously disappointed from their healthcare providers. And that's certainly something that I can resonate with, you know, after years and years of seeing doctors. But they're also enormously disappointed when they've turned to alternative therapies because they've handed over their money and they're still ill. And so what I think that this information does is it brings together what ancient wisdom has taught us mm-hmm. for thousands and thousands of years mm-hmm. with the Western medicine and the Western science that we need. And so what we're seeing now is this opportunity for those two areas what we've considered traditionally as mainstream medicine and what we've traditionally considered as alternative medicine. And here now we have this opportunity for the two of them to come together. And and so I feel a lot of hope, despite despite the fact that I'm talking to people all the time who feel like they have lost hope. Hopeless. And, uh, yeah, feel feel like they're hopeless. But but I really, we're really at a very exciting time in research You know, one of the things that has really surprised me in writing this book is that a lot of the references, a lot of the scientific papers that I'm referring to and and reading every single day have only been published in the last two to three years. Oh, yeah, for sure. Now, what that means when I think about it, I was diagnosed when I was 24 and I'm 34 now. So I was diagnosed 10 years ago. ago. So when I think back and and I ask, why didn't my doctor tell me about all of this? Didn't Why didn't he tell me there was something? The truth is, is back then, what I'm talking about every single day really would have been considered quackery. Oh God, yeah. I mean, because thirty we didn't years have the ago, to back it up. Thirty years ago, I, you know, proclaimed I was going to study naturopathy, and that was considered quackery. Mm. I mean, my friend's father looked at me with disdain and said. And what are you going to do, open an outpatients clinic? And I didn't even know what an outpatients clinic was. And I said, I don't know. It's moving so quickly. It's very exciting how awareness is expanding, Mm. you know, awareness of the potential within us. And Mm. 
and you talk about people that feel hopeless because they're looking for that help in a in a system, an ideology, a person outside of themselves. And really what mind-body medicine says is bring it all back and find its self-empowerment, its personal empowerment. It's about you've got control over how you think and feel. And when you feel good, you'll feel physically better. And that's going to help. I think that with every system of medicine or, or care, it's important to feel like you're supported from people around you. I think that's the role of most systems of care, whether you're having massage or you're having operations, there's someone that's supporting me in, I mean, there's been tests where surgeons have, you know, not done the surgery, but the person has healed because they believe that the surgery's happened, they put their faith in the hands of the surgeon, you know, the placebo effect. So mm. it's that faith, that trust, that faith. You're supported. There are people around you that are on the journey with you. Did you find that with your journey? Well, yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you bring up studies on, I think you're referring to studies done on sham knee surgery where um, knee surgery was shown to be, you know, when, when people went through knee surgery and the, the doctors opened them up and, you know, sort of moved some things around and then closed them back up again, they recovered at similar rates to people who actually received the therapeutic surgery. What's really interesting to me is research coming out of Harvard by a man named Ted Kapchek, who has a history as being one of the pioneers in traditional Chinese medicine in the West. And he spent decades in, in the East learning traditional Chinese medicine, and then he brought it back home to the US. And he he couldn't help but ask, what is it about the acupuncture that I'm doing with these people that is actually seeing them, you know, get wonderful results and, and, and in some cases recover? And, and is it the needles that I'm putting into them every single day? Or is it the fact that unlike their doctors, I'm spending 45 minutes talking to them about how they're feeling and, and what their medical histories are? And the really fascinating things about his research in the last two to three years, really, is that he's gone from studying the, you know, the compelling evidence about acupuncture to actually saying, maybe what this is, is, is a meaning response, is the ritual of medicine and what that ritual of medicine can do to trigger a genuine physiological healing response in the body. And, and he's shown that people who are given fake acupuncture can actually see benefits equal to that of people who receive real acupuncture, which, you know, as a man who spent decades and decades practicing traditional Chinese medicine is not welcome news because they want to know that there's something actually happening with those needles. But, but he's been big enough and open-minded enough to say, well, you know what? I don't care if it's the needles or not. I know that something's going on in the work that I'm doing to trigger a physiological response in the body and I'm okay with that. Yeah. So it's really interesting, really interesting research. And, and of course, the bigger implications for that research are about the modern healthcare system and, and the way that doctors are being increasingly squeezed to fit more and more patients into 15-minute windows or five-minute windows in some cases. And, and I can't help but think about my own experience through the healthcare system where I, I had one specialist doctor who would schedule at least 30 patients within a, a one to two hour slot and never actually give us a particular time that we would be seeing him. And so I would have to take half a day off work just to see him. Or another specialist doctor who never once looked up from his notes and his dictaphone to talk to me as a person. 
And, and, I've got and a story I think to myself, <laughs> you know, I'm paying, I'm paying money to see a doctor. I want, I want that doctor-patient interaction. I yeah. need that what Ted Capjet calls that ritual of medicine because I don't care if it's placebo. I just want it to work. Yeah. And so I think in so many ways I think that all of us who turn in droves towards alternative medicine, I think in a lot of ways what we're seeking is connection. Is is yeah, is connection. <laughs> it's connection with our with our healthcare providers. We just want Absolutely. somebody to listen. <laughs> Look, I've got yeah. so many stories about that. Years ago I used to be, you know, cool and, and drive a Vespa moped when I was, you know, twenty. And someone came up a one way street right outside St. Vincent's Hospital and smashed into me and smashed my arm up. So I went to hospital and I had an operation and then the doctor came in a few days later and he did exactly what you said. He didn't look up from the clipboard. He didn't announce himself. He walked into the room. I had a girlfriend sitting on the bed. I hadn't met the doctor because I went into emergency and then into the operation and so I didn't meet the doctor before it all happened. And he just looked at my clipboard. He examined my wrist. He didn't actually even look up into my eyes. And I said, excuse me, who are you? And he just said, how are you feeling? Have you got, the, you know, blood? He just asked me a few minutes and walked out of the room. So the nurse came back into the room and I said, who was that? <laughs> she said, oh, that's the doctor. He's the head and, you know, oh, homage to the doctor. Oh. And I said, he's not allowed back in this room. And the nurse said, oh, no, 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 he's the head. You don't understand. I said, I don't care who he is. He's not allowed back into this room. And there was this, I created this furor in St. Vincent's Hospital. I was so appalled at the way he treated me. He didn't even look at me. He didn't even introduce himself. And I just thought, this is not on. Mm. And so the operation he did was a failure and I had to have another operation. And so they employed uh, one of the young interns, a young Asian student, to do an operation he'd never done before. But the rapport between us was fantastic. And he talked to me about why he became a medical student and how he wanted to be a carpenter, but he thought, you know, putting the body back together was more interesting than building shelves, and I really got that. And, you know, and that operation was a complete success. So really interesting, isn't it? Really interesting that you're just a, you know, you're a spleen in bed nine and not a person. Yeah, mm. I think that's changing. That's So uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for spreading the word about the film and, you know, I hope people, your audience, I hope they respond very warmly to all this information. So where can people see the film if they want to get a hat, get a hold of it? Okay, so we, um, our, my website is theconnection.tv and I write a blog, uh, a regular blog that people can sign up to our newsletter to, to receive updates on that. Um, the book will be out next year and so it's best just to sign up to the newsletter to, to find out about when that's um, being released. But the film itself is available on the website as well. It's also available on iTunes. Um, people can host their own screenings if they like, or there's streams, downloads, and DVDs available on the website as well. So, a lot of yoga retreats and yoga places are showing the film, which is fantastic to see that it's getting mm. around. Do you have any policy about people showing it to groups of people or not? Yeah, well, we up for the first 12 months, there has been a screening fee involved, smaller fees for educational organizations and larger fees if people were wanting to try and make money out of, you know, screening it in cinemas and things. 
for our first year anniversary, we're opening up that screening licence. So um, that'll be announced in about two weeks' time. So um, if people want to host host a screening, best, it's best just rather than needing to buy the licence, it's best just to get in touch with me and I'll waiver, I'll waiver the screening licence. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sounds like a plan. And is the book going to be called The Connection? The, it'll be called The Whole Health Revolution. The Whole Health Revolution. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Shannon, for coming Thank on the show. And congratulations on the work you're doing. It's really important. So Thanks so much. Go, girl. Thanks so much for joining us for another enlightened conversation on Accentuate the Positive. If you would like spiritual guidance from my guides, Blissful Beings, go to karenswain.com for a reading or to listen to more enlightened thought leaders share their wisdom. Go to the listen page on karenswain.com and choose who you want to listen to. All the podcasts are also available on iTunes. Remember to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, you name it, we're there. Until next time, bye for now. Happy